Leading Britain's Conversation, LBC, with Nick Abbott. In this hour, I'm asking you if there is to be a peace treaty to end the Ukraine conflict, what terms do you think should be acceptable to the Ukrainians? And can we actually trust Vladimir Putin's word on anything? 0345 6060 973. Uh, but as mentioned, President Zelensky today spoke to US Congress, and joining me now to talk about that is LBC's Washington correspondent Simon Marks. Hello, Simon. Evening, Nick. So he uh, spoke to US lawmakers. What happened? Uh, well, it was an interesting speech because it wasn't just a retread of what he'd done 24 hours earlier in Canada, speaking to the Canadian Parliament in Ottawa, uh, or the speech that he gave in the House of Commons a few days ago. He targeted this speech very carefully for his audience, the American audience. So he reached back into U.S. history. He cited uh, the attack on Pearl Harbor, uh, the Al-Qaeda strikes on Washington and New York of September the 11th, 2000. Uh, suggesting that both of those attacks on America and American interests had been launched from the air and therefore the United States knew better than most countries around the world what it was like to be on the receiving end of terror from the skies. Uh, and that's how he built his argument for a no-fly zone uh, to be implemented uh, in the skies above Ukraine. He even at one point uh, quoted the Reverend Martin Luther King Jr. saying, I have a dream, uh, and his dream, of course, was that the United States and NATO would do more to help him push back against the Russian military onslaught. He also uh, used a very carefully crafted video. I mean, there's that old American adage of, uh, show me, don't tell me, uh, and that's exactly what he did with this audience. He showed them a very, very emotionally produced video uh, that started out uh, with a series of scenes depicting uh, normal life in a prosperous and happy Ukraine, Ukrainian people, young and old, going about their daily activities. And then it was intercut with some of the absolutely horrific imagery uh, that we have all tragically come to uh, see from Ukraine every day for the last three weeks. And after that, in his speech, uh, he switched to English and launched a direct appeal uh, aimed at President uh, Joe Biden, uh, urging him to do more, to step up, to act as the leader uh, of the world. And it was, it was pretty um, notable uh, that he really challenged President Biden. I mean, he didn't accuse him of having stopped short uh, of stepping up and uh, assuming a leadership mantle, but he clearly inferred that he didn't think Joe Biden had done enough to do that. And after it was all over, very clear evidence of attitudes hardening on Capitol Hill, uh, with uh, some senators from both sides of the aisle, Republicans and Democrats, uh, confirming that they are now having discussions about whether it would be possible, uh, if not to enforce a no-fly zone, because I don't think there's enough backing for that here, uh, given that everyone seems to think it's the slippery slope to World War Three. Uh, but certainly the possibility of getting jets, fighter jets and planes into the hands uh, of Ukrainian pilots. So it may well be that there's a lot more pressure uh, that is uh, brought to bear from Capitol Hill on President Biden over the next few days as a direct result of that speech.
And President Biden did say that they were going to provide an enormous amount of aid. What, what, would, what did he say on that? Yeah, so he unveiled uh, a, a new uh, package uh, worth $800 million of lethal weapons that the United States says it is immediately going to send to Ukraine. And the White House insists that it still has a method of getting that weaponry into the hands uh, of Ukrainian forces. The president made the point that he'd authorized two million dollars uh, of expenditure on weaponry over the weekend this took the total to just over one billion dollars this is one billion of the 13 billion dollars earmarked for ukraine in that emergency spending bill that was passed by congress uh, late last week another indication of congress kind of uh, giving joe biden the tools to do more than he's done so far uh, we know that this package of aid is going to include more Javelin anti-tank missiles, it's going to include stingers, it's going to include some uh, degree uh, of equipment to help improve Ukraine's air defences. And most interestingly, I thought, of all, this time round it's going to include drones, which I think takes us all down a quite interesting sort of rhetorical path, because... If the Biden administration's position last week that it was was that it was blocking those Polish fighter jets from being transferred into Ukrainian hands because the president seemed very concerned that that was going to drag Poland, a NATO country, and therefore all the rest of us into war with Russia, where exactly do you draw the line? I mean, if fighter jets are over the line and you think that's going to spark a war... Why wouldn't drones that the United States is supplying to Ukraine that can drop bombs on tanks uh, also be over the line? The Biden administration apparently doesn't think that it is. And I suspect, Nick, that we're now in an evolving situation here. Uh, a couple of weeks ago, uh, President Biden had no intention whatsoever of banning Russian oil imports. It was a video link uh, address to about 30 U.S. senators by President Zelensky over a weekend that hardened attitudes on Capitol Hill, directly leading to a U-turn by the White House on that issue. And before we knew where we were, President Biden was suddenly banning oil imports. It is possible that a very similar process is now underway with uh, members of the House and the Senate beginning uh, to have a bit more steel in their bellies than President Biden currently uh, evinces in his. And maybe that's going to lead to further developments and uh, certainly moves to provide the Ukrainians with uh, fighter jets and more robust air defences in the days ahead. And I believe that... Uh President Biden was asked by a journalist whether he thinks that Vladimir Putin is a war criminal. What happened there? Well, this has been just a, a sort of bizarre series of events over the last few hours. Let me take you back uh, to where all this began earlier in the day. President Biden, uh, as you know, after signing that legislation uh, about uh, providing the Ukrainians with more um, uh, lethal equipment... Uh, was asked by reporters, given that he had described um, uh, uh, Vladimir Putin as a uh, murderous dictator who was deliberately targeting civilians in hospitals and in uh, tower blocks across Ukraine, didn't that mean that Vladimir Putin was a war criminal? And President Biden didn't answer the question. He left the room as the reporters were continuing to attempt to ask it. Uh, 
later in the day, he was doing another event uh, all about equal pay, nothing to do with Ukraine. And once it was over, uh, one of the reporters who had tried to ask the question at the White House earlier asked him the question as he walked past them. And this took place initially. No. Are you ready to call Putin a war criminal, she asked. He said no. Pretty clear that he was not yet ready to do it. Seconds later, he turned around and walked back to the reporter, seeking to clarify whether she had asked him the question that she'd evidently asked him there. Do you think uh, Vladimir Putin is a war criminal? So this then took place. So he was a war criminal, and the president seemed to imply that he hadn't understood what question she was asking, although why he answered it in the negative uh, is very unclear. All of this created all sorts of difficulty at the White House for Press Secretary Jen Psaki to clean up, because when the United States declares the leader of another country a war criminal, that normally isn't something you kind of stumble into on the cuff. That, under normal circumstances, follows a substantial, deliberative interagency process between various government departments and the White House. Here's how Jen Psaki explained at today's White House press briefing what had occurred. The president's remarks speak for themselves. Uh, he was speaking from his heart and speaking from what he's seen on television, which is barbaric actions by a brutal dictator uh, through his invasion of a foreign country. Uh, there is a legal process that continues to, is underway, continues to be underway at the State Department. Uh, that's a process that, that they would have any updates on. Now, nothing wrong, of course, with speaking from your heart, whose heart has not been moved by the scenes that we've all witnessed uh, emanating from Ukraine over the last three weeks. But the problem with speaking off the cuff like that is that it has substantial implications for the future of American policy. Uh, it means that President Biden now believes Vladimir Putin doesn't belong in the Kremlin, but instead instead belongs uh, on a one-way plane ride to The Hague, along quite possibly with Sergei Lavrov, the Russian foreign minister, Defence Minister Sergei Shoigu, and a whole host of other Kremlin insiders. Uh, so it finally is an answer to the question that the White House has relentlessly sidestepped over the last three weeks, which is, are there any circumstances in which anything approximating normal diplomatic channels between the White House and the Kremlin can continue to exist after this conflict is over or even before it ends? Uh, all of that now seems to have gone down in flames, and I think we'll have to see how much more meat on those particular bones President Biden offers, because he's going to be asked about this again uh, and again in the days ahead to clarify whether at this point he thinks Vladimir Putin can still be seen and viewed by the world community as the legitimate leader in the Kremlin. Well, you know uh, that Trump's not in the White House anymore when the president speaking off the cuff is uh, a news story. <laughs> Simon, uh, there is breaking news about three Panamanian flagships which have been struck during a Russian attack in the Black Sea. What do you know about that? Yeah, th this is coming from Reuters, the news agency reporting that three Panamanian ships were hit during a Russian attack in the Black Sea. One of them reportedly sank. We do not yet know uh, the details of this, but we absolutely know uh, that the Russians have engaged in attacks on shipping uh, off the Black Sea port of Odessa uh, over the last uh, several days and the last 
last couple of weeks. Uh, it was uh, only about uh, two weeks ago that an Estonian-owned cargo ship uh, sank off the Black Sea port of Odessa. A Bangladeshi vessel was hit by a missile at another port. Uh, a whole raft of uh, shipping firms have actually suspended operations. They've told uh, captains of uh, cargo ships and other uh, vessels not to transit through the Black Sea or head to Black Sea ports. As this invasion continues, uh, there was a Romanian vessel, I think about three weeks ago, uh, that was struck by a Russian missile. Romania, of course, a NATO member. All of this could be, and again, we don't know the details, but it could be an effort to try once again and draw NATO into the conflict, given that there are all sorts of Panamanian registered vessels that obviously don't come from Panama, but are actually uh, coming from uh, other countries all over the world that register those vessels in Panama because uh, there are, um, you know, relaxed uh, rules in, in, in Panama for the registration of shipping. So I think we're going to have to keep an eye on it and see exactly what these vessels were. Um, uh, no word on casualties or whether there was any loss of life caused by this and whether this was deliberate strategy by the Russians or whether the ship simply got caught in some kind of crossfire. Thanks, Simon. Simon Marks, LBC's Washington correspondent.